This is a recording of My People Are Willing, the mention of Aminadab in the narrative context of Helaman 5 and 6 by Matthew L. Bowen, originally published in Interpreter, a Journal of Mormon Scripture, Volume 19, 2016, pages 67 through 91, read by Parker Jackson. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged the journal and its website are credited and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles and resources on Mormon scripture can be found at mormoninterpreter.com. My People Are Willing The Mention of Aminadab in the Narrative Context of Helaman 5 and 6 by Matthew L. Bowen Abstract Aminadab, a Nephite by birth who later dissented to the Lamanites, played a crucial role in the mass conversion of 300 Lamanites and eventually many others. At the end of the pericope in which these events are recorded, Mormon states, And thus we see that the Lord began to pour out his Spirit upon the Lamanites because of their easiness and willingness to believe in his words, whereas he began to withdraw his Spirit from the Nephites because of the wickedness and the hardness of their hearts. The name Aminadab is a Semitic or Hebrew name, meaning, My kinsman is willing, or, My people are willing. As a dissenter, Aminadab was a man of two peoples. Mormon, and probably his source, were aware of the meaning of Aminadab's name, and the irony of that meaning in the context of the latter's role in the Lamanite conversions, and the spiritual history of the Nephites and Lamanites. The narrative's mention of Aminadab's name in Helaman 5, 39 and 41, and Mormon's echoes of it in Helaman 6, 36, 3 Nephi 6, 14, and elsewhere, have covenant and temple significance, not only in their ancient scriptural setting, but for Latter-day readers of the Book of Mormon today. Like the mention of a woman named Abish in Alma 19.6, Mormon's abrupt threefold mention of a man named Aminadab in Helaman 5, verses 39 through 41, draws attention to an individual whose life and legacy might otherwise have remained anonymous and thus forgotten. As noted elsewhere, the mention of Abish is remarkable, since she is one of few women and servants in the Book of Mormon whose personal name is given. While it is not evident from the text that the man Aminadab was a servant, neither is it evident he was a leader, unless calling the attention of the multitude and answering their questions constitutes such evidence. Mormon tells us he was merely one among those in that prison, though a Nephite by birth. Nevertheless, Mormon emphasizes the fact he considers crucial, namely, that Aminadab was a dissenter. They that were in the prison were Lamanites and Nephites who were dissenters, uh, in Helaman 5.27. He had, quote, belonged to the church, but had dissented from them, in chapter 5, verse 35. Hardly an auspicious characterization, given what Mormon has recorded up to this point in his history regarding notorious religio-political dissenters like Zarahemna, Amalickiah, Amaron, Coriantumr, and others. Mormon shows that Aminadab differs from those earlier dissenter predecessors in that his rebelliousness and unwillingness to believe became righteousness, faith, and willingness and he facilitates the acquisition of these same qualities by many others, both Lamanites and Nephites. Mormon introduces and incorporates Aminadab, his name, biography, and salient role in the conversion of 300 Lamanites and Nephite dissenters, and subsequently many others, into his narrative in such a way as to give the impression that he is drawing on Aminadab's eyewitness knowledge of those events. For example, Mormon describes some of what was seen in the prison from Aminadab's own perspective, including details only Aminadab himself could have known. Aminadab's words are preserved and properly attributed. He knew Aminadab's backstory. Indeed, the fact that Aminadab's name is known and remembered suggests that Mormon, and probably others, considered it important. In other words, Mormon draws on an account of these events recorded by Aminadab himself, or accesses the record of someone who preserved Aminadab's account. Aminadab, though only briefly mentioned in the text and only in this pericope, plays a pivotal role in Lamanite and Nephite spiritual history. 
Thus, while Mormon clearly considered Aminadab's name and biography important, additional textual evidence throughout Helaman 5 and 6 suggests that all this is more than just historical reminiscence on the part of Mormon and his sources. In this article, I propose that Mormon's mention of the name Aminadab in Helaman 5, 39-41, like his mention of the name Abish in Alma 19.6, served an important narratological function. Mormon, like his source, appears to have been aware of the Hebrew meaning of Aminadab, my kinsman is willing, or my people is or are willing, and the ironic importance of the meaning of this name in the context of the socio-religious shifts of that epoch. The Nephites, from whom Aminadab had dissented, becoming an increasingly wicked people, like Nephite dissenters had in previous generations, and the Lamanites and Nephite dissenters with them becoming more righteous. This narratological trajectory reaches its apex in Helaman 6.39, where Mormon says of the people of the Lamanites that the Lord poured out his blessings because of their easiness and willingness to believe in his words. Although this remark at chapter 6, verse 36, occurs at some remove in the text from the, from the mention of Aminadab in chapter 5, verses 39 to 42, it constitutes a seemingly deliberate echo of his name. Aminadab was not only a fitting name for the figure who bore it, in view of his personal story of repentance and conversion, but also because of the role he played in the conversion of so many others, a people who became willing. My kinsman is willing, or my people are willing. The name Aminadab is a Semitic or Hebrew name with a straightforward etymology. Aminadab, Aminadab, or Aminadib, taken as a theophoric name, as names in the ancient Near East commonly were, denotes my kinsman is willing, or Yahweh as my divine kinsman is willing. However, Aminadab can also be taken as a non-theophoric name, meaning my non-divine kinman is willing, my people are willing or noble, or my kin are willing or noble. Ami meaning my people, and Nadab meaning willing. This range of possible meanings is important to what shall be discussed below. Aminadab is one of a handful of Nadab names borne by Israelites in the scriptures, including Aminadab, meaning my father is willing or generous, Abinadab, excuse me, Nadab, meaning willing, generous, or noble, and its longer form, Nedabiah, meaning Yahweh is willing, or Yahweh is generous, or Yahweh is noble. The onomastic elements of Aminadab, or Aminadab, occur together in the Song of Deborah and Barak. Praise ye the Lord for the avenging of Israel, when the people willingly offered themselves. From Judges 5.2 They also occur together in Psalm 110, verse 3, a temple hymn in which it is said of the Davidic king, Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. The Persian-era chronicler, perhaps having some reference to Psalm 110 in its temple context, emphasizes the willingness of David and the people in making offerings for the building of the temple as preparations were made a project later carried out and completed by his son Solomon. In First Chronicles 29, the verb nadab occurs seven times alone, repeatedly in juxtaposition with the noun am. Then the people rejoiced, for that they offered willingly, because with perfect heart they offered willingly to the Lord. And David the king also rejoiced with great joy. First Chronicles 29, 9. But who am I, and what is my people, Ami, that we should be able to offer so willingly after this sort? For all things come of thee, and of thine own have we given thee. First Chronicles 29.14 I know also, my God, that thou triest the heart, and hast pleasure in uprightness. As for me, in the uprightness of mine heart, I have willingly offered all these things, and now have I seen with joy thy people, which are present here to offer willingly unto thee. 1 Chronicles 29.17 In all this, the chronicler insists, the people of Israel in D David's time met the Mosaic Law's willingness requirements in their sacrifices and offerings. In Exodus 25.2, the Lord had commanded Moses, Speak unto the children of Israel that they bring me an offering. Of every man that giveth it willingly, with his heart ye shall take my offering. 
Similarly, the book of Ezra's description restored cultic practices at the newly rebuilt temple in Jerusalem following the Babylonian exile, the temple of Zerubbabel, specifically mentions the free will offering, suggesting its importance, and afterward offered the continual burnt offering, both of the new moons and of all the set feasts of the Lord that were consecrated, and of every one that willingly offered a free will offering unto the Lord. These biblical passages suggest a close connection, perhaps an ideal connection, between the identity of Yahweh's people and their willingness, all this in the context of temple. In the end, what else would or should distinguish a people of the Lord from other people other than their willingness to bear his name, to keep covenant his commandments, and to do his will? Aminadab, man of two peoples. As a Nephite dissenter, Aminadab was a man of two peoples. The Nephites, whose culture and religion had been his prior to his dissension, and the Lamanites, whose culture he had adopted. Mormon recognized the fact that Aminadab, on this occasion, serendipitously bridged the two cultural uh, and religious worlds, serving as an instrument in the Lord's hand in converting the Lamanites and other Nephite dissenters in the prison. Now there was one among them who was a Nephite by birth, who had once belonged to the church of God, but had dissented from them. And it came to pass that he turned them about, and behold, he saw through the cloud of darkness the faces of Nephi and Lehi, and behold, they did shine exceedingly, even as the faces of angels. And he beheld that they did lift their eyes to heaven, and they were in the attitude as if talking or lifting their voices to some being whom they beheld. And it came to pass that this man did cry unto the multitude, that they might turn and look. And behold, there was power given unto them that they did turn and look, and they did behold the faces of Nephi and Lehi. And they said unto the man, Behold, what do all these things mean? And who is it with whom these men do converse? Now the man's name was Aminadab. And Aminadab said unto them, They do converse with the angels of God. And it came to pass that the Lamanites said unto him, What shall we do that this cloud of darkness may be removed from overshadowing us? And Aminadab said unto them, you must repent and cry unto the voice, even until ye shall have faith in Christ, who was taught unto you by Alma and Amulek and Zizram. And when ye shall do this, the cloud of darkness shall be removed from overshadowing you. And it came to pass that they all did begin to cry unto the voice of him who had shaken the earth. Yea, they did cry even until the cloud of darkness was dispersed. Helaman 5, verses 35 through 42. The phrase, Now there was one among them, recalls Mormon's introduction of several other important figures into his narrative, Alma the Elder, Zizram, and Abish. Alma, Zizram, and Abish had belonged to groups who were not living according to the Lord's commandments, and all three became converted to the Lord, undergoing full personal transformations. Moreover, all three became instruments in the Lord's hand in bringing about the conversions of many others. Alma founded a church, Zizram helped reconvert many Zoramites, and Abish participated in the conversion of many other Lamanites. The language here suggests that Aminadab belongs to this class of persons and that his role was similarly important. Mormon also plays on the name Aminadab as he does the names of these three. Mormon stresses that Aminadab was both a Nephite by birth and a dissenter from the Church of God. In other words, he had evidently repudiated both his cultural and religious heritage. Mormon also describes what Aminadab saw on this occasion in great detail, even from the latter's own perspective in Helaman 6, verse 36. So much so that we get the impression that Mormon drew directly on Aminadab's own account or reminiscence of this event. Aminadab saw through the cloud of darkness. This cloud of darkness evokes the theophanic cloud, which was said to surround Yahweh and which Yahweh was said to reside. From Psalm 97, 2, 1 Kings 8, 12, and 2 Chronicles 6, 1. As well as the cloud in the storm god imagery, sometimes used to de describe Yahweh's presence in the Hebrew Bible. See Psalm 104, 3, Isaiah 19, 1, Jeremiah 4, 13, and Ezekiel 38, 9. The cloud that initially veiled the Lord from the brother of Jared, and through which the Lord stretched forth his hand and touched the stones one by one with his finger, as 
the veil was taken from off the eyes of the brother of Jared functions similarly. Aminadab himself does not behold a theophany per se, but he is a key witness to the theophany that Nephi and Lehi themselves beheld. While perhaps he does not see through the veil in precisely the same way that the brother of Jared does on Mount Shalem in Ether 3, nevertheless Aminadab sees enough and has enough spiritual insight to recognize the sacred nature of what was transpiring and has enough wherewithal to draw the attention of the Lamanites and Nephi dissenters to Nephi and Lehi and the theophany that the latter were experiencing. The fact that Aminadab quickly recognized what was happening suggests that his knowledge of the gospel, as taught among the Nephites, and of spiritual things, had been great, and that not all had been forgotten. Who is it with whom these men do converse? The Divine Kinsman of Helaman 5. In the ancient Xenophyte prison in the land of Nephite, about 300 Lamanites and Nephite dissenters, Aminadab among them, heard the voice of God declare, Repent ye, repent ye, and seek more to destroy my servants, which I have sent unto you to declare good tidings. Mormon then describes the divine voice as not a voice of thunder, neither a voice of great tumultuous noise, but a still voice of perfect mildness, as if it had been a whisper. From chapter 5, verse 30. See also a pleasant voice, as if it were a whisper, in verse 46. Language that evokes or depends upon 1 Kings 19.12 and 1 Nephi 17.4, meaning a still small voice, literally meaning in Hebrew, voice of a thin whisper, and language that foreshadows his description of the voice of the Father in 3 Nephi 11. The voice then comes again, declaring, Repent ye, repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and seek no more to destroy my servants. Mormon states that the voice came a third time, and did speak unto them marvelous words which cannot be uttered by man. The Lamanites and Nephite dissenters are immobilized by the cloud of darkness and the fear that it produced. Thereupon Aminadab counsels the men in the prison, You must repent and cry unto the voice, even until ye shall have faith in Christ. Aminadab, as a Nephite dissenter and lapsed member of the church that had originally been re-established by Alma the Elder, understood the meaning of the voice's reiterated command, Repent. He also apparently understood the importance of repentance in the context of the doctrine of Christ, as evident in his counsel, that they cry unto the voice, Even until ye shall have faith in Christ. Aminadab knew that crying unto the voice would instill faith in the one whom he had formerly understood to have the power to dispel darkness. Thus, Aminadab's counsel has the added effect of centering their understanding of the phenomena and thus the Lamanites and dissenters' nascent faith in Christ. They heed Aminadab's counsel with marvelous results. The cloud of darkness is dispersed and they are all encircled about by a pillar of fire. They become, like Nephi and Lehi, partakers of and participants in the theophany. It is important to note here that the one to whom the voice belonged, Christ, is also the source of the ensuing blessings. Christ dispersed the overshadowing cloud of darkness. Christ sent the encircling or embracing theophan theophanic fire. The one in whom there should come every good thing. The Redeemer and Rock in whom Nephi and Lehi believed. Here we recall that Aminadab's name means both my kinsman is willing, generous, or noble, and my people or kin are noble. There is ample evidence in the Israelite onomasticon for Yahweh's being considered the divine kinsman of Israel. Yahweh was conceived as a divine father, a divine brother, in other words, a kinsman. The concept may be tribal in origin. Frank Moore Cross observes, The Israelite League was a religious organization or society. Priestly families linked by genealogy to create a priestly tribe were set aside or set apart to conduct rituals and sacrifices to preserve religious lore. The League was called Am Yahweh, which we generally translate 
the people of Yahweh. However, Am is a kinship term, and for our purposes here is perhaps better translated the kindred of Yahweh. Yahweh is the God of Israel, the divine kinsman, the God of the covenant. The Am Yahweh, kindred of Yahweh, in some contexts must be translated the militia of Yahweh, and in some contexts the Am Yahweh is a community of worshippers, a cultic association. The kinship relationship between Yahweh and Israel is presupposed in statements made throughout the Book of Mormon that the Lord, Yahweh, would redeem his people. Such a statement occurs in Helaman 5, verses 9-10, through 10, where Helaman identifies Jesus Christ as Yahweh, the kinsman redeemer. Oh, remember, remember, my sons, the words which King Benjamin spake unto his people. Yea, remember that there is no other way nor means whereby man can be saved, only through the atoning blood of Jesus Christ whom shall come. Yea, remember that he cometh to redeem the world. And remember also the words which Amulek spake unto Zizram in the city of Ammonihah. For he, Amulek, said unto him, Zizram, that the Lord, Yahweh, surely should come to redeem his people, but that he should not come to redeem them in their sins, but to redeem them from their sins. Helaman's statement to his sons, Nephi and Lehi, constitutes an important backdrop against which the theophany and the miraculous conversions of Helaman 5 take place. The Hebrew divine epithet Goel, meaning redeemer or kinsman redeemer, implies kinship with the redeemed. The mere presence of the name Aminadab in the text of this narrative and in the context of Helaman's declarations to Nephi and Lehi draws potential attention to Yahweh, the rock of our redeemer who is Christ, the Son of God, and his role as the divine Am, meaning kinsman, in relationship to his Am, meaning people or kin, and his showing himself willing or generous in that role. The divine voice speaks again in Helaman 5, verse 47. Peace, peace be unto you, because of your faith in my well-beloved, which was from the foundation of the world. It is the divine kinsman, the divine kinsman for whom Aminadab conceivably had been named, who speaks. The repetition, peace, peace, here corresponds to the twofold repetition of repent, repent, in Helaman 5, verses 29 and 32. The term peace, in fact, indicates that repentance has taken place, and that peace has been created between Yahweh and the Lamanites, and Nephite dissenters in prison, just as peace is created between Gideon and Yahweh in Judges chapter 6, verses 23 and 24. The initially diffident Gideon, who had sought a confirmatory sign that it was in fact Yahweh or his messenger that was speaking with him, was terrified at the theophanic fire and the sight of the divine messenger upon seeing them, since such theophanic manifestations were potentially fatal. Yahweh himself voices the reassurance that Gideon needs. And the Lord, Yahweh, said unto him, Peace be unto thee, fear not, thou shalt not die. Then Gideon built an altar there unto the Lord, and called it Jehovah Shalom, meaning he creates peace. Unto this day it is yet in Ophra of the Abbey Ezrites, uh, in Judges 6, verses 23 and 24. Robert Bowling suggests on analogy with Frank Moore Cross's etymology for Yahweh Sebaot, meaning he creates the heavenly hosts, frequently rendered Lord of hosts or Lord of Sabaoth, that the name Jehovah Shalom means he creates peace, just as Yahweh, the Savior himself, created life-saving peace between himself and Gideon through the life-saving at one month of Isaiah's sin during the theophany that attended his calling to be a prophet in Isaiah 6 verse 7. He also created peace between himself and Aminadab and the three hundred in the prison. Peace, peace be unto you, by virtue of their faith and the atonement, because of your faith in my well-beloved, who was from the foundation of the world. With the peace or atonement necessary for surviving a theophany thus created, all three hundred men become partakers of the divine nature, as in Second Peter 1.4, or partakers of the heavenly gift, as found in 4th Nephi 1.3 and Ether 12.8, as they participate in the divine council as it descends to them. 
And now when they heard this, they cast up their eyes as if to behold from whence the voice came. And behold, they saw the heavens opened, and angels came down out of heaven and ministered unto them. The participation of these men in and their instruction by the divine counsel constitutes a kind of endowment. Like prophets Isaiah, Lehi, and Ezekiel in the divine counsel, they become endowed with the knowledge of God and commissioned to go forth and bear an incontrovertible testimony of him. They become empowered to minister unto the people. They become ministering angels like the angels who minister to them in the divine council. The some 300 witnesses subsequently all receive a kind of prophetic or angelic commission. They were bidden to go forth and marvel not, neither should they doubt. Go and tell this people, or Am, their subsequent going forth and ministering unto the people indicates their willingness in response to this commission. Like Isaiah, Abraham, and the Lord himself, they were commissioned in a divine council setting. In this instance, they do not ascend into heaven, but rather the divine council, or a portion thereof, descends to them, as it does to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Their response to their commissioning compares well to the response, Here I am, send me, in Abraham 3.27 and Isaiah 6.8, or Here am I, in Genesis 22.1 and 11, and 1 Samuel 3, verses 4 through 21. They have become angelicized, that is, divinely sent messengers from the divine kinsmen to their own people, their kindred. They will emerge as willing messengers who instilled willingness in the kinsfolk who hear their message. They did go forth and did minister unto the people, in Helaman 5.50, the making of a willing people. The Lamanites and Nephite dissenters in the prison, perhaps in no small part because many of them were Nephite dissenters, became a missionary juggernaut. Commissioned to go forth and minister, they taught and bore testimony effectively and gained converts quickly. And there were about three hundred souls who saw and heard these things, and they were bidden to go forth and marvel not, neither should they doubt. And it came to pass that they did go forth and did minister unto the people, declaring throughout all the regions round about all the things which they had heard and seen, insomuch that the more part of the Lamanites were convinced of them, because of the greatness of the evidences which they had received. And as many as were convinced did lay down their weapons of war, and also their hatred and the tradition of their fathers. And it came to pass that they did yield up unto the Nephites the lands of their possession." Helaman 5, verses 49 to 52. The Lamanites readily recognized the greatness of the evidences which they had received, which, which suggests both teachability and willingness. The greatness of the evidences uh, consisted in the greatness of the testimonies that these Lamanites and dissenters bore. They were testimonies of surpassing faith. Jesus himself specifically cites these Lamanites as examples of faith and offering the broken heart and a contrite spirit that became the required sacrifice when the Mosaic cultic requirements were done away. See 3 Nephi 9 verse 20. These Lamanites had been willingly offering the true sacrifice, the sacrifice of a broken heart and a contrite spirit, even before the coming of Christ. A tale of two peoples. The Lamanites become a righteous people vis-à-vis -vis the Nephites. Mormon's focus in the material that follows the Theophany and Miracles of Helaman 5 is clearly the state of the people, Hebrew Ha'am, after the Theophany and the concomitant conversion of so many Lamanites and Nephite dissenters, the collective spiritual trajectory of the Lamanites trends upward for more than a generation. And it came to pass that when the 62nd year of the reign of the judges had ended, all these things had happened and the Lamanites had become the more part of them, a righteous people, or kin, insomuch that their righteousness did exceed that of the Nephites, because of their firmness and their steadfast—excuse uh, me, steadiness in the faith. For behold, there were many of the Nephites who had become hardened and impotent, excuse me, impenitent, and grossly wicked, insomuch that they did reject the word of God and all the preaching and prophesying which did come among them. From Helaman 6, verse 2. The description, firmness and steadiness in the faith, plays on and overturns the pejorative unbelief. 
frequently ascribed by the Nephites to the Lamanites. The Lamanites had become the more righteous, the more willing people. On the other hand, the adjectival descriptions of many of the Nephites as hardened, impenitent, and grossly wicked describe the diametric opposite of a people who are willing. This unwillingness is exemplified in their wholesale rejection of the word of God, preaching, and prophecy. To the joy of the unified people of the church, however, opposite conditions prevail among the Lamanites. Nevertheless, the people of the church did have great joy because of the conversion of the Lamanites, yea, because of the church of God which had been established among them. And they did fellowship one with another, and did rejoice one with another, and did have great joy. And it came to pass that many of the Lamanites did come down into the land of Zarahemla, and did declare unto the people of the Nephites the manner of their conversion, and did exhort them to faith and repentance. Yea, and many did preach with exceedingly great power and authority, unto the bringing down many of them into the depths of humility, to be the humble followers of God and the Lamb. And it came to pass that many of the Lamanites did go into the land northward, and also Nephi and Lehi went into the land northward, to preach unto the people. And thus ended the sixty and third year. From Helaman 6, verses 3 through 6. Mormon's use of the phrase, people of the church, illustrates that there was at this time, as had been developing for several generations, a sociology that transcended the traditional Nephite-Lamanite divisions. The church, or the people of the church, were comprised now of large numbers of ethnic Lamanites. The Lamanite testimonies were difficult, if not impossible, to dismiss. There were so many witnesses, all testifying of the same thing, all of whom who had gone from a state of radical unbelief to preaching with exceedingly great power and authority. This same total reversal was, in part, what made Alma and the sons of Mosiah such impressive and powerful missionaries in their generation. Moreover, Mormon here stresses that the missionary activity undertaken in the 63rd year of the reign of the judges in the land northward was a concerted effort. The Lamanites and Lehi and Nephi are all the subject of the verb preach. Their united preaching unto the people made a more righteous people out of both ethnic groups. Unprecedented unity and prosperity followed. In spite of, and evidently because of, the almost utopic prosperity or peace of the Nephites and Lamanites described in Helaman chapter 6 verses 7 through 9, wickedness sets in again rather quickly among the Nephites. That same Caesarum, the judge whom the increasingly wicked Nephites had chosen in place of Nephi the son of Helaman, is assassinated. However, instead of choosing a righteous judge, the people chose that man's son, who is also subsequently assassinated. And it came to pass that in the sixty and sixth year of the reign of the judges, behold, Caesarum was murdered by an unknown hand as he sat upon the judgment seat. And it came to pass that in the same year that his son, who had been appointed by the people in his stead, was also murdered. And thus ended the sixty and sixth year. And in the commencement of the sixty and seventh year, the people began to grow exceedingly wicked again. Helaman 6, verse 15. Two chief judges chosen and appointed by the people, whose wickedness had so greatly wearied Nephi that he resigned his office, are assassinated in rapid succession by wicked members of Kishkuman and Gadianton's secret combination. The instability of the Nephite leadership situation reflects the moral instability of the people and the rapid oscillation between wickedness and righteousness. The Nephites' willingness at this stage of their history is best evident in their proclivity toward collective wickedness, extreme wickedness. Mormon, with the benefit of hindsight, recognized that kinetic secret combinations were lethal to a people. Now behold, it is these secret oaths and covenants which Alma commanded his sons should not go forth unto the world, lest they should be a means of bringing down the people unto destruction. Helaman 6 verse 25. While making this record, Mormon himself had been a first-hand witness to the destruction of his own people, in no small part due to the Ganianton robbers. And the Nephites had long had the lessons of the destruction of the Jaredites available for their profit and learning. Mormon leaves no doubt here as to the authorship of these secret combinations. And also it is that same being who put it into the hearts of the people to build a tower sufficiently high that they might get to heaven. 
And it was that same being who led on the people who came from that tower into this land, who spread the works of darkness and abominations over all the face of the land, until he dragged the people down to an entire destruction and to an everlasting hell. Helaman 6, verse 28. Satan works hard on the heart, which anciently is the seat of thoughts and emotions, since it is particularly susceptible to his corrupting influence. In fact, Mormon states that Satan is the author of all sin, and that he doth carry on his works of darkness and secret murder, and doth hand down their plots and their oaths and their covenants and their plans of awful wickedness from generation to generation, according as he can get hold upon the hearts of the children of men. At the end of the Book of Mormon, excuse me, at the end of the Book of Helaman, Mormon reports that notwithstanding the signs and the wonders which were wrought among the people of the Lord, and the many miracles which they did, Satan did get great hold upon the hearts of the people upon all the face of the land. It should be noted here that Exodus 35 illustrates the connection between the heart and willingness, or Nadab. According to this text, the building of the wilderness tabernacle, Israel's first temple, was enabled or at least facilitated by the willingness or generosity of the Israelites themselves to donate the required materials. Whosoever is of a willing heart, let him bring an offering of the Lord, gold and silver and brass. Exodus 35.5 And they came, every one whose heart stirred him up, and every one whom his spirit made willing both men and women, as many as were willing-hearted, and brought bracelets and earrings and rings and tablets, all jewels of gold, and every man that offered, offered an offering of gold unto the Lord. Chapter 35, verses 21 and 22. The children of Israel brought a willing offering unto the Lord, every man and woman whose heart made them willing to bring for all manner of work, which the Lord had commanded to be made by the hand of Moses. Chapter 35, verse 29. One people, the Lamanites, was willing. The other, the Nephites, was not. Willingness opens the path to increased faith and righteousness. Unwillingness and hard-heartedness ultimately result in destruction. For their part, the only willingness that many of the wicked Nephites demonstrated was in building up unto themselves idols of their gold and their silver, the very opposite of the willingness described in Exodus 35. Because of their easiness and willingness to believe. Helaman 6, verse 36. The Nephite's ancestor, Nephi, the son of Lehi, also connected the heart with willingness. In expanding the doctrine of Christ, Nephi testified, I know that if ye shall follow the Son with full purpose of heart, acting no hypocrisy and no deception before God, but with real intent, repenting of your sins, witnessing unto the Father that ye are willing to take upon you the name of Christ by baptism, then ye shall receive the Holy Ghost. Yea, then cometh the baptism of fire and of the Holy Ghost. And then can ye speak with the tongue of angels, and shout praises unto the Holy One of Israel. Second Nephi 31, verse 13. Mormon records that the voice of Christ explicitly stated that the Lamanites in the prison had, because of their faith in Christ at the time of their conversion, been baptized with fire and with the Holy Ghost, and they knew it not. 3 Nephi 9, verse 20. In other words, the baptism of fire had come to these Lamanites and Nephite dissenters because of their willingness to have faith in Christ and take upon them his name. Thus they, like Nephi and Lehi, spoke with the tongue of angels and with angels. This point finds marvelous confirmation at the end of Mormon's excursus on the primeval origins of secret combinations and their relationship to the problem of the Gadianton robbers, to whom the Nephites had lent much support. There, Mormon summarizes the trajectories of both the Nephites and the Lamanites, the latter emerging as the more righteous people, the more willing people, and the people who are legitimated as the Lord's people by their reception of the Holy Ghost. And it came to pass that all these iniquities did come unto them in the space of not many years, insomuch that a more part of it had come unto them in the sixty and seventh year of the reign of the judges over the people of Nephi. And they did grow in their iniquities in the sixty and eighth year also, to the great sorrow and lamentation of the righteous. And thus we see that Nephites be, uh, did begin to dwindle in unbelief, 
and grow in wickedness and abominations, while the Lamanites began to grow exceedingly in the knowledge of their God. Yea, they did begin to keep his statuses and commandments, and to walk in truth and uprightness before him. And thus we see that the Spirit of the Lord began to withdraw from the Nephites because of the wickedness and the hardness of their hearts. And thus we see that the Lord began to pour out his Spirit upon the Lamanites because of their easiness and willingness to believe in his words. Helaman 6, verses 32 through 36. Here, Mormon affirms the key connection between the heart and willingness described above. The Nephites hardened their hearts, while the Lamanites and their hearts were easy and willing to believe. The Lamanites emerged as a people upon whom the Lord could pour out his spirit, as well as his blessings and favor, because of their easiness and willingness, a description that recalls the name Aminadab and its meaning, My people are willing. Terminology rendered willingness occurs only here, in Helaman 6.36 and in Mosiah 29.37 and 38, suggesting that Mormon's word choice here was deliberate. The Lamanites had become like the righteous and willing Nephites of Mosiah II's time, while the Nephites of Aminadab's time had become the very people that Mosiah had warned against. We recall that Aminadab was a man of both the Nephite and the Lamanite peoples. Ironically, it was his second people, the Lamanites, who were willing, while his first people, the Nephites, who had been favored by the Lord for centuries, by implication became unwilling. Mormon appears to have recognized that irony. Indeed, there is something marvelous about a Nephite dissenter, whose name denotes, my kinsman is willing, or my people are willing, giving spiritual direction to Lamanites and other Nephite dissenters, who, upon their conversion, preached and testified to an increasingly hard hearted and unwilling Nephite nation who saw themselves as the goodly or fair ones and believed the myth of inherent chosenness. It is perhaps worth noting that the 1981 and 2013 LDS editions of the Book of Mormon provides a footnote for the word willingness in Helaman 6.36 that references Exodus 25.2. As noted above, the word translated willingly in Exodus 25.2 is a form of the word nadab. The concept of a people who are willing then fittingly punctuates an episode in which the key player ambiguously named my kinsman is willing or my people are willing, Aminadab, opens the way for Nephi and Lehi's theophany-attended miracles to exert their maximum effect. The narrative deliberately exploits the ambiguity of the Ami element in Aminadab to emphasize not only the willingness or generosity of the Lord, the divine kinsman who poured out his spirit abundantly on the Lamanites and Nephite dissenters, but also to emphasize how willing they became and the subsequent willingness of those who converted because of their testimonies. As if to further emphasize the point, Mormon then cites a concrete example of just how willing or generous the Lamanites had become vis-a-vis -vis their Nephite counterparts. He juxtaposes the Lamanite solution with the Gadianton problem to the Nephite non-solution. And it came to pass that the Lamanites did hunt the band of robbers of Gadianton, and they did preach the word of God among the more wicked part of them, insomuch that this band of robbers was utterly destroyed from among the Lamanites. And it came to pass, on the other hand, that the Nephites did build them up and support them, beginning at the more wicked part of them, until they had overspread all the land of the Nephites, and had seduced the more part of the righteous, until they had come down to believe in their works and partake of their spoils, and to join with them in their secret murders and combinations. And thus they did obtain the sole management of the government, insomuch that they did trample under their feet and smite and rend and turn their backs upon the poor and the meek and the humble followers of God. And thus we see that they were in an awful state and ripening for an everlasting destruction. And it came to pass that thus ended the sixty and eighth year of the reign of the judges over the people of Nephi. Helaman 5 verses 37 to 41. The Lamanites hunted the Gadianton robbers, not for the purpose of doing violence to them or exacting revenge, but in order to preach the word of God, recalling Mormon's earlier description about the virtue of the word, um, from Alma 31, uh, verse 5. 
The results are nothing short of miraculous. The Gadiantans are utterly destroyed from among the Lamanites, making them an even more righteous and willing people. The Nephites not only did build the Gadianton robbers up, but actively participated in or joined their program of seducing the righteous. The result was an unjust and wholly corrupt government. While the Lamanites preached the word of God among the more wicked part of them, the Gadianton robbers, the Nephites also began at the more wicked part of them, but instead built up and supported them until the entire nation was overspread with that evil society. The Lamanites and Nephites more or less hold in this pattern until the time of the coming of the Savior's ministry among the people of Nephi who were spared, and also those who had been called Lamanites who had been spared. As evident by Mormon's comment in 3 Nephi 6.14, which I will now treat at length. A People Willing with All Diligence Aminadab's Legacy Amid the general apostasy that preceded the cataclysmic upheavals in the New World concomitant with the Savior's death at Jerusalem, which is described in 3 Nephi chapters 8-10, through 10, Mormon states that there was only one people that remained true and faithful, and that group was not the Nephites. Notwithstanding the breaking up of governments in 3 Nephi 7, and even the breaking up of the church that had enjoyed a continuous existence since the time of Alma the Elder, one group of converted Lamanites remained faithful. And thus there became a great inequality in all the land, insomuch that the church began to be broken up, yea, insomuch that in the thirtieth year the church was broken up in all the land, save it were among a few of the Lamanites who were converted unto the true faith. And they would not depart from it, for they were firm and steadfast and immovable, willing with all diligence to keep the commandments of the Lord. 3 Nephi 6, verse 14. Note here that Mormon describes them not only as firm and steadfast and immovable, a formula found elsewhere in connection with Laman and Lemuel and their descendants, but also characterizes them as willing with all diligence. Mormon's use of the term willing here harks back to his use of willingness at the close of Helaman chapters 5 and 6. His use of willing further recalls the name Aminadab, meaning my people are willing, and the chain of events that lead to the Lamanites and the Nephite dissenters becoming a willing people over against the Nephites who became increasingly hard-hearted uh, or unwilling and wicked. Just as Ammon left a legacy of faithfulness as an instrument in the Lord's hands in the conversion of thousands of Lamanites, Aminadab too, albeit in a somewhat smaller capacity, left a legacy of having served as an indispensable instrument in the conversion of many souls and the improvement of many lives. Mormon and his sources were eager to recognize Aminadab in that role. Pragmatics and Conclusion who then is willing to consecrate his service this day unto the Lord? From 1 Chronicles 29.5 This concept of willingness is fundamental to true covenant obedience. As documented by Moroni, the Lamanite Nephite sacrament prayers included language in which the partakers witness or testify to the Father of their willingness. O God, the Eternal Father, we ask thee in the name of thy Son, Jesus Christ, to bless and sanctify this bread to the souls of all those who partake of it, that they may eat in remembrance of the body of thy Son, and witness unto thee, O God the Eternal Father, that they are willing to take upon them the name of thy Son, and always remember him, and keep his commandments which he hath given them, that they may always have his Spirit to be with them. Amen. Moroni 4.3 in similar language the Lord revealed to Alma the Elder regarding the members of the nascent church. Yea, blessed is this people who are willing to bear my name. For in my name shall they be called, and they are mine. Mosiah 26, verse 18. This ideal was fully achieved generations later when the Savior established his church among the Nephites and Lamanites with the result that there were no robbers nor murderers, neither were there Lamanites nor any manner of ites, but they were in one the children of Christ and heirs to the kingdom of God. 4th Nephi 1.17 
The willingness of the Lehite people for a time achieved this ideal as they lived what Latter-day Saints often term the law of consecration as instituted by the Savior. And they taught and administer one to another, and they had all things common among them, every man dealing justly one with another. 3 Nephi 26, verse 19. And they had all things common among them. Therefore, there were not rich and poor, bond and free, but they were all made free and partakers of the heavenly gift. 4 Nephi 1, 3. Today, as anciently, covenant obedience and willingness are most evident in the degree to which we keep or do not keep the law of consecration. Finally, we recall David's words as reported by the chronicler. Who then is willing to consecrate his service this day unto the Lord? 1 Chronicles 29.5 The answer to that question for the Lord's people must collectively be we, and individually, here am I. Willingness to put everything on the altar, like Abraham in Genesis 22, is the great ideal to which the temple and its covenants leads us today. For we still must needs be chastened and tried even as Abraham, who was commanded to offer up his only son. For all those who will not, or are not willing to, endure chastening, but deny me, cannot be sanctified. See D&C 101, verses 4 and 5. If we are to be the Lord's people, the kin of the divine kinsman, our Redeemer, we must be willing to serve him at all hazards. Aminadab and the three hundred in the Xenophyte prison became a willing people and helped numerous others become likewise. Latter-day Saints today should be inspired by their example and strive to follow it. The author would like to thank Susie Bowen, Daniel C. Peterson, Jeffrey M. Bradshaw, Tim Guyman, Parker Jackson, and Heather Sewells. Matthew L. Bowen was raised in Orem, Utah, and graduated from Brigham Young University. He holds a Ph.D. in Biblical Studies from the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., and is currently an assistant professor in religious education at Brigham Young University, Hawaii. He and his wife, the former Suzanne Blattberg, are the parents of three children, Zachariah, Nathan, and Adele. This has been a recording of My People Are Willing, the mention of Aminadab in the narrative context of Helaman chapters 5 and 6 by Matthew L. Bowen, originally published in Interpreter, a Journal of Mormon Scripture, volume 19, 2016, pages 67 through 91. Read by Parker Jackson. A printed version of this and many other articles and resources on Mormon Scripture can be found at mormoninterpreter.com.